Griffiths again. Hello and welcome to the Pure Football Podcast, the unbiased voice giving you in-depth insight from the local park to the World Cup. I'm Gavin Miller, Pure Football Founder and Market Insights Recruitment Analyst, and I'm joined by my regular co-host Owen Brown. Owen's a writer for has been a writer for Statsbomb, Scouted Football, and many others. Owen, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, Gavin. Thanks. How are you? Yep, doing really good, mate. Doing really good. And before we get into our usual dissection of the the weekend's action in Scottish football, uh, Owen, I've got a really specific question for you. Uh, this weekend, we saw Ajax absolutely destroy. Uh, VV Venlu 13-0 and make a mockery of XG. And what I want to know, Owen, is what's the highest scoring game that you remember watching live, on TV or in person? Okay, uh, well it's worth pointing out first that in a week of Kamar Roof scoring that goal, I once played a 10-0 win and scored from the halfway line. <laughs> uh, so 10-0 is a lot and if you've ever played football with me, you know how improbable that is and, and therefore kind of how noteworthy it is. Um, but in terms of like actual matches, um, I remember I'm, I'm convinced I watched on TV at the time, though maybe I'm kind of making that up in my mind now. But the highest scoring SPL, as it was back then, match is Motherwell 6, Hib 6. And I've convinced myself that I watched that on TV. Might just be maybe that I've watched the highlights so often and stuff that I've, <laughs> I've told myself that. But anyway... It was an incredible game, right? So Hibs led 4-1 and 6-2 at various points, but Motherwell got back to it at 6 each. And, and you know, even more than that, it was the second last game of the league season. Both teams were chasing Europa League qualification. Um, the game had doubles for Anthony Stokes, Giles Coke, John Sutton, a hat-trick for Colin Nish. Um, and there's also kind of two links into today's topics. Um, so there's a link in with a referee, and uh, a substitute, um, and I guess I'll mention those once you've kind of told people what the topics are. I love it. Uh, and just for, you know, uh, that six each game, that's obviously a classic. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really, um, it's, it's nice that you think you watched it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one for the, the jury to decide. Um, but I'm going to say that mine was uh, Hibs 5, Rangers 5. And this was another crazy game. Hibs were 3-0 up, uh, and it goes into halftime three each. Um, Rangers then uh, go ahead 5-3, and Hibs pull back two goals uh, in the sort of dying embers of the game after I think Jason Holt sent off. Um, shout out to Bruno Alves. Uh, and, yeah, I think his time in Scotland is probably... Um, yeah, I don't know why I gave him a shout. Actually, I take that back. No shout out for Bruno Alves. Um, is he is he at Parma still? Do we know that? Um, I, I, I think he I think he's moved on from Parma, but I, I don't know. Um, um, anyway, maybe. anyway, thrown off by Bruno Alves. Um, so yeah, you you give some sort of clues to some of the topics today, uh, and we said this week we would actually focus in on. Aberdeen versus Celtic, and specifically try and look at some of the things that Aberdeen have been doing recently. Um, but also, excitingly, this is the first time since football started back up properly that we're going to be dropping down a few divisions and we're going to be looking at 
Queen's Park, who took on Albion Rovers at Hamden. So let's just get straight into things. Uh, as I mentioned, so we're going to look at the, the game between Aberdeen and Celtic. Um, but before we get into the game specifically, Owen, do you have any thoughts or data that you can share around about what's changed for Aberdeen this season so far? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess the first thing for Aberdeen this season is that in terms of their kind of expected goals, the underlying numbers, uh, leading up to this match against Celtic, Aberdeen had a non-penalty expected goals of 1.21 per game. Uh, last season, it was 1.18, so very similar in terms of the kind of chances and, and you know quantity and quality of those they're making per match. However, um, this season they're conceding 0.91 XG per match, non-penalty XG, whereas last season it was 1.31 per match. So their non-penalty expected goals difference per match this season is 0.30, which puts them third in the league, whereas last season it was negative 0.12, which was eighth in the league. Um, So there's been a clear improvement for them in terms of expected goals, and and it's really mainly coming out, at least in terms of those numbers, um, from the defensive side of things, you know, the amount that they're conceding. And I think that's kind of interesting, given that a lot of the focus on Aberdeen has maybe been on changes to who's playing up front with, you know, Cosgrove's injury and, and Main being unavailable and a slight kind of change of terms of style. And also the style in terms of on the ball and, and maybe the kind of goals from the likes of Lewis Ferguson. So it was kind of interesting to me statistically to see that change defensively. And one of the things that kind of ties in with that is that Aberdeen give up 10 shots a game, which is the fourth lowest in the league. Uh, for comparison, Motherwell give up 12, Hibs give up 13.4 per match. So those are kind of some interesting stats. The, the other kind of thing that stuck out for me in terms of Aberdeen statistically is in terms of um, the share of their expected goals and the type of chances that that maybe comes from. So in terms of their attack, um, in terms of the total non-penalty XG that they make, um, the share that comes from build-up attacks, which are attacks that start in their own half with five or more passes before the attempt, has increased this season to 47.2% from 19.4% last season. Um, and that increased share has kind of come from across the board as each of the other kind of five categories that I would consider um, have decreased. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting. doesn't mean that they're making um, more uh, chances from build-up attacks or that the, they're better at them. It just means that in comparison, as a, as a percentage of the total that they make, more of their chances come from that type of attack than from uh, you know other types of attack as a share. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And, and I guess the final thing I would say about Aberdeen in terms of kind of data or thoughts and so on is just the kind of structure that we've seen lately. So it's mainly maybe been like a kind of 3-4-3 or 3-5-2 kind of type setup with a lot of emphasis on runners off the ball to create chances. And for me in defence, um, a focus on getting lots of numbers back around and inside the box generally. What about you, Gavin? Anything that's kind of stuck out for you? Yeah, I think uh, without going into specific data, it's more the style of their games. And whilst um, I think that Aberdeen are, you know, they're definitely tighter at the back. You can see that. I think the game at the weekend showed you um, just how resilient they are in terms of their uh, defensive style and structure um, but what I would say is their games are actually quite frenetic I was watching back the highlights of their game against Dundee United and it looks like they want to be really 
it's almost a little bit like basketball at times, uh, McInnes ball. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely a change from the just, you know, firing long balls up to Sam Cosgrove. Um, mm. And I think that's starting to get the better out of some of the players. But I guess we'll get into some of the specifics of that um, as we go through the game with Celtic. But sure. as we, we move on to that, I guess then, so... Can you give me a thoughts? Some of your thoughts, sorry, around about uh, going into the game. What was your expectations, and and do you think that Dave Cormack's time in America is rubbing off with the Aberdeen squad, with their numbers now more resemblance to an NFL roster with number fifty Marley Watkins, number forty Ross McCrory, Ryan Edmondson, thirty-two. Is squad number versatility the future? Uh, I hate it. Shocking. <laughs> Those kind of numbers. It's tough enough for me to figure out what kind of setup Derek McInnes is going to play uh, before you start, you know, putting in mad numbers into things. So yeah, not not a fan of that. I, I guess um, maybe they've given some players um, that they've got in over the last season or two who maybe will be moving on shortly. Numbers that some of these guys might inherit. So like Ross McCrory, for instance. Um, you know, you'd imagine that next summer his move is going to be made permanent, and then maybe somebody like Funso Ojo, who I think currently has the number eight jersey, maybe he'll move on, or maybe he'll be persuaded mm. to give up that number to him or Ferguson or somebody. But anyway, yeah, the the numbers are a frustration <laughs> in terms of my expectations going into this game. Um, look, I expected some sort of reaction from Celtic to their recent troubles. Um, I was a wee bit unsure as to whether Lennon might either spring some surprises in terms of line-up and approach and so on, or be quite stubborn. Um, you know, he, he would maybe have a tendency to do one of those two things. Um, I also expected a reaction from Aberdeen um, to the Sky Sports 22 goals for Celtic mm. promo clip. Um, so, yeah, some sort of reaction. I, I thought this was going to be a, an interesting game. There was a, a lot kind of riding on it for Celtic, but also I felt that, you know, um, Aberdeen could be a dangerous opponent for them, regardless of the the kind of current situation. Um, but Aberdeen, you know, maybe have struggled to be able to better Celtic at yep. times recently. Um, this might have been the opportunity for them. Celtic were maybe there, you know, for for the taking a wee bit fragile. Uh, yeah, what about you? Any specific expectations you had? I, I was just I was intrigued to see what the Celtic lineup was. So I guess moving straight on to that, Scott Brown came out. Of the Celtic lineup, we've seen a move away from the the sort of three at the back to a standard sort of four two three one, which is maybe more uh, custom to Celtic, uh, or a, I guess it was maybe a bit more of a four three three at times. Um, but yeah, what 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 about the the change? Do you think it was a bit of a surprise to see Brown drop? Did you think Lennon was going to keep him in? I thought he would keep him in uh, for a game like this. I, I was a wee bit surprised. Um, I mean, obviously he took him off after, what, an hour or so against Milan and Celtic did well after Brown went off. But this is a different type of game. You know, you might expect Aberdeen to be kind of intense and aggressive and stuff. And, and I kind of thought that might be a reason that Lennon at least would want to keep him in. Um, it's a kind of brave choice to do it, I guess. You know, it's quite a, a, a decision. Um, and it was an interesting midfield for Celtic. So McGregor, you know, we, we kind of assumed before the match that he would be in at kind of six, you know, sort of playmaker yep. from deep areas, which he was. And then you could add Nietzscheam and Rodgick ahead of him. As you mentioned, it was essentially a kind of 4-3-3 with Nietzscheam, the kind of left-sided midfielder, and then Rodgick, the right-sided central midfielder, but Rodgick a little bit further ahead of Nietzscheam. Um, I guess my thoughts about that was, with that midfield plus the fullbacks, um, Fringpong and Laxalt, 
it's a very attacking kind of lineup for Celtic, at least in terms of the the likelihood of people being ahead of the ball and you know um you know people who don't necessarily want to defend too much. You know, um, if you you look at that out of the midfielders, I mean, none of those are really defensive midfielders. You know, McGregor obviously can put in some work, but it's not as forty. Um, and the fullbacks are both, you know, their their main attributes are going forward. So that, that was kind of interesting to see how that played out. Um, also, from an Aberdeen perspective, it was kind of interesting to see if McCrory would be in at centre midfield to kind of continue this uh, sort of partnership with Lewis Ferguson or whether he'd be out at right wing back and, you know, what the thinking would be behind that for Aberdeen. Um, it was also interesting to see where, like, Watkins and Hedges and Edmondson would spend most of their time. It's quite a, a, a sort of mobile approach, I guess, for Aberdeen. You know, yep. lots of running not necessarily set details in terms of where exactly each of these guys have to be in terms of, uh, you know, you're you're on the right, you're on the left and so on. So th- it was kind of interesting for me about that. What about you? Yeah, I, I think it, it was definitely just, it was interesting to see how both teams lined up. I was surprised that Scott Wright dropped out for Aberdeen. I've been quite impressed with him. Uh, I think that he's someone that's, you know, he obviously made an impact in the game itself, but I really like how he plays. I think he's quite direct and, able to make things happen when he's on the ball. So, yeah, it was definitely uh, some interesting choices from both teams. So the game, obviously, was it was a bit of a, a you know uh, a blockbuster in terms of what we've seen so far. It was a, a three-each thriller and, you know, loads of goals that we'll, we'll get through. But what I wanted to do just very quickly is remove any dubiety. In this game, there was uh, three penalties. So 50% of the goals were penalties and I just want your take. Do you think any of these were contentious or can we sort of just move on from that? Uh, no, none of them were contentious for me. Um, I, I'd say they're all penalties. The, the one for Celtic, um, I think it's, you know, maybe El Inusi buys it a wee bit, but I think it's just stupid for Mobin. You can't stick out your leg like that in the area in that scenario and it's it's definitely a penalty. Um but yeah, all pens for me. Yeah, I totally agree with that and I'm glad that we can quickly move on from, from that. I've seen a few... Terrible okay. takes uh, around about the refereeing decision, and I think uh, uh, Willie Collum has been slammed for his performance. Um, but I'm I'm not too well, sure if he did too much. Clearly, wrong. Um, Willie Collum just loves a goal, given that he was actually the referee in the Motherwell Six. Ah, game, nice. Uh, that I mentioned at the start, so uh, that's the kind of link there. So he didn't quite get his twelve goals um, on Sunday, but you know, six not bad. Another fifty percent <laughs> effort given you. You know, I love um, it. But yeah, I love uh, it. All penalties. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, so let's go to the actual action itself then and, and talk me through what you've seen in the first half specifically. So at times it looked like Celtic struggled to break down Aberdeen. Uh, Aberdeen had lots of blocks, clearances. I think there was a one sort of chance from Encham that, you know, hit the hit the bar. Um, but it just looked like Aberdeen were happy, you know, with things being quite scrappy and stopping Celtic getting into any real rhythm when they got to, you know, 25, 30 yards from the, the Aberdeen box, sometimes even deeper. But was there any adjustments that you've seen before the Aberdeen goal that you felt Celtic could have done to create more? Uh, well, that's interesting. I mean, it was incredible how many bodies Aberdeen got back and into the box at times. Um, but on the whole, I would say that the penalty goal at the end of the first half obviously puts a whole different spin on things. 
But up until then, I felt Celtic were really in control, but you know, failing to make many good chances, partly because of how many people Aberdeen got back. Um, interestingly, um, Ajeti actually took no shots at all in this game, and he played what like at least an hour. Um, I felt that for Celtic, in terms of different things they could have done, might just have been helpful to have a bit more patience to work better chances. Um, the Ncham shot against the post is a an obvious example of that. So yes, he hit the post, uh, wind assisted or whatever. But you know that that's we're not all Kamar Roof. You know we we can't all score from that kind of distance. <laughs> and I felt that that was a a silly sort of thing to do. You know, and kind of indicative um, of Celtic generally. Too too often, um, either Laxalt or Fringpong put in poor overhead crosses, and I'm not too sure they were ever likely to score from them, even if they put in a really good ball. Um, it might have been better to recycle the ball and work another better chance. You could see later on from the McGregor and Griffiths goals that a bit of patience and a threaded pass to somebody finding space in the box was the route that would eventually pay off. Um, in addition, I think there was a continuing over-reliance on Fringpong, and often he was coming in field diagonally, which you know we've spoken about before. It can obviously be a very useful weapon, um, particularly if you're able to you know beat somebody off the dribble and open up space. But it's not so useful against a team that doesn't commit, you know, and, and just kind of is okay, um, allowing you to you know walk the ball towards you, but backing off and, and filling up the box. In those situations, I felt that Celtic needed somebody to overlap him um, when he was coming in diagonally. And of course, you know Ryan Christie was the most advanced uh, right-sided attacker, but he's not really suited to doing that. You know, Christie wants ideally to come inside. I think if Celtic could have, they could have had uh, Nisham or McGregor come round the outside and give that kind of overlap. It's obviously a risky tactic because then you you know you're taking a central midfielder out of the space, um, and you know you're susceptible on the counter attack. But it might be a way to force. Um, you know, less of a cross or less of a shot from distance, but more of those kind of cutback chances that ideally Celtic want to make. The other thing I was thinking as well, um, in terms of how you get overlap with Frimpong, if you want to be really brave, um, you could try and have Christopher Iyer doing it. I was thinking today that one thing Celtic could consider doing if they're going to have to play a back four of Frimpong, Duffy, Iyer and Laxalt is to swap Iyer and Duffy. There's no particular reason that Ayer needs to be the left-sided centre-back. He's not a left-sided centre-back. He's only played there because, you know, he's maybe, in comparison to other people, more comfortable on the ball. Um, but the the plus points for swapping him and Duffy over would potentially be that Ayer is quicker and better at covering behind Fringpong anyway. Um, he can also pass the ball quicker to Fringpong if he's on that side. Um, but the other thing I was thinking it could maybe do would be as well as the ball carrying, he could maybe get forward off the ball. It's very risky, obviously. You then need like a centre midfielder to kind of fill in behind, but it would be another way to try and get, you know, somebody forward and, and round. And he has done that before. If you maybe think back to, there was a goal for Ayer against Motherwell, yeah, um, where he's, you know, done things like that. So anyway, these are the kind of things that I would think of, you know, if I was Celtic, that they needed to create more width, have more positional interplay around people and more patience to try and just kind of work the actual real chances. Um, for Aberdeen, I don't really think any adjustment was needed. I think you could see their plan and it was working. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that's pretty fair. I think one one other thing that I would just quickly add to, and some of your, you know, your points are, are really, really interesting in terms of how Celtic could have potentially committed men forward and gave Aberdeen effectively different looks and different thoughts to consider when defending 
Uh, I just it really stood out to me how uh, withdrawn uh, Ayeti was. I felt like he was far too deep at times, and I I didn't understand the need for it. I really didn't. I think at times he was closer to Callum McGregor than he was to. Ryan Christie. Um, if you if you look at the heat map for Celtic, the positional heat map for each player, he he is deeper than both Elianusi uh, and Christie, um, and I think that's a fair point. You know, he he's not a target man, but something that would have helped Celtic in that sort of situation might be for you know a centre forward to occupy the centre backs and, and be a, a kind of pivot there. I, I agree entirely. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if if maybe Lennon thought that uh, Aberdeen might have put a man marker on Ayeti. Um, I just don't particularly understand. Or maybe it might have, you know, pulled a centre back out in some way, yeah. but Aberdeen were fine, just you know, letting him go. He's not the sort of guy, really. Where I mean, you can kind of let him go because if you let if you let Edward go in that way, and then Edward gets the ball, Edward's going to turn and dribble at you, yeah. and he'll 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 score. Or he'll set somebody up to score. As much as Ajeti is a good player, he's not got that in his locker, really. Um, yep. Or at least, you know, he didn't show it. And, you know, the fact that both he didn't contribute in that way, but also as a result of doing that, like I said, he had no shots in this game at all. Yep. And, and, you know, he's surely, he's there to shoot, isn't he? Yep. You know, that's that's what he's, you know, he's a goal scorer, surely. Yep, totally agree again. And I think, you know, this, uh, the, the first half, you know, it was a bit of a, it felt like a bit of a boxing match where it was just you sort of two fighters sort of, jabbing each other, trying to establish their jab. And then Aberdeen got the sucker punch when Incham gives away the penalty, which Lewis Ferguson dispatches to make it 1-0 for Aberdeen going into halftime. Um, going into halftime, I've got two sort of questions for you here. You've mentioned some of the, the in-game changes that you would have made, potentially. Would there be any other changes that you would have made? And secondly, how do you think that dressing room would have felt at that point going into uh, halftime, 1-0 down, after the recent results, yeah, wouldn't have been a good place. I don't think I can imagine people might have been a bit pissed off with each other, and rightly so. Um, the penalty, for example, is packed full of mistakes. Um, so if you, if you have a look at what happens in the build up to the penalty, obviously the focus is on Nicham, and rightly so because he really messes up. Um, he doesn't see Ferguson's run at all, isn't scanning, doesn't track, and when he sees him, moves too quickly, and then obviously he's um, inept in the way that he kind of moves his body in the box and, and you know, gives away the penalty. But there's other people at fault in this too. Um, so uh, McGregor gets sucked into the ball um, and, and kind of doubles up with Fringpon when it's probably unnecessary. But as a result of that, Hedges um, is able to make a run off McGregor. And Duffy is already, in my view, in a bad position. He's too high up and too wide, which is leaving Ayer um, too isolated against the centre-forward at the top of the box and also creates that space that Ferguson can then run into um, off and jam. But the problem is compounded for Duffy because once McGregor leaves his man, um, Hedges makes a run, and then you know Duffy thinks, well, I need to look after that run, whereas it's not a particularly difficult, or, or sorry, not a particularly dangerous run or, or space to give up. He, he needed, in my view, to be back, um, you know, locking off that space that Ferguson is able to run into. So what, what I'm basically saying is that... Um, Given the week that they've had, um, and then having made a not being able to make a breakthrough in the match at all, and and you know the weather's shit, they're probably feeling a bit down, and then have that happen right before half time, couldn't have been a good place at all. And and particularly if you know maybe you have people who like Brown as a sub, uh, and you know Brown obviously will be a vocal voice um, in that dressing room, 
but he's not responsible for any of the mistakes in the game at this point. So, you know, he, he's going to be pretty annoyed and people can't really say anything back to him because he's done nothing wrong. You know, he's a sub. So, yeah, can't have been a good place. Um, in terms of changes or anything like that, um, I, I don't think you can make any changes in terms of personnel at that point. Um, you know, it's, it's very early. And like I said, up to the penalty, as much as Celtic didn't make any good chances, they weren't in danger. You know, they were kind of in control. Um, I would just be trying to suggest the, the things that, you know, we kind of said before there about different methods of making chances and maybe trying to get people like a jetty to play slightly differently um, and maybe trying to inspire some of the individuals who you might think you would expect a little bit more from, um, like El Yunusi, um, people like that, you know, the, the people that they've brought in to be the guy that makes things happen. You know, where where's you know, where's the um, contribution at this point? You know, what about you? Yeah, I think the first of all, the the dressing room I think would have been quite hostile. And I don't know if you mm-hmm. noticed this as well. Neil Lennon's body language in this game just looked very abject. It wasn't the animated um, that we've seen before, and I'm just starting to wonder whether whether he's going to leave, you know, leaving it up to the players to sort these sort of things out. I'm just not too sure. Uh, just going by what his body language was like against Aberdeen, a lot of arms crossed on the bench. Uh, just didn't look very happy. It's difficult to know what to think about these things. I, I don't disagree that that's what you're seeing from him, but maybe that's a reaction of his to how the media are and, and stuff like that. And, you know, he he doesn't want to kind of have to be seen as this overly kind of demonstrative or kind of stressed. You know, maybe he's trying to make a sense of calm for the players that he thinks that they're doing okay and that, you know, if they continue doing what they're doing, things will come right. I'm not necessarily convinced that that's a, an argument I'd be sold by, um, but, you know, maybe that's his his position on it. I don't know. Um, I, again, I, I do think that potentially you might be looking for a little bit, I'm not asking for him to kind of be running up and down the, the touchline showing kind of uh, quote-unquote leadership, mm-hmm. but it, it does look a little bit like, again, from the outside and just kind of guessing at these things, even between some of the players, um, the communication doesn't look ideal to me. Um, so yeah, it might be a little bit of a concern. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly say that rings true. Um, but I guess with our speculation in mind, Celtic reacted. Um, we seen a fantastic goal shortly after halftime from Cal McGregor and uh, Tom Rogic with some excellent interplay, and it was the first time you saw, as you mentioned, that it felt like Celtic were patient in their build-up and really tried to thread it through the Aberdeen defence. Talk me through this goal, Owen, and you know, what what did you think was going to happen after this point? Well, it was a really lovely goal, wasn't it? Um, the sort of thing we'd probably be hoping that Cal McGregor could do for Scotland one of these days. Um, but the interesting thing about it, I guess, was that um, McGregor, who was the kind of, you know, deepest central midfielder, generally kind of playmaking, and probably intended to be a bit of insurance against... Uh, you know, counter-attacks and so on. I guess he made the decision because, you know, Celtic were obviously 1-0 down. He was going to get ahead of the play and kind of, you know, um, try and make things happen. And he's very, very good at it. You know, he, he beat his man initially easily and, you know, Rodic has the ball control and the vision to play a nice pass back into him and it's beautiful feet from McGregor and a really good finish. And I, I think, yeah, at that point, I sort of thought, well, th- there's a 
Celtic can see now how they can get a goal, you know, and and you know that might give them opportunities. But I did also think that you know if they're going to have to try and get a goal in that way, there might be gaps for Aberdeen to exploit, you know. Um, so I wasn't entirely sure that Celtic would go on and dominate. I did think that it would be a way for them to see how they could unlock things, though. Yeah, and I, I guess your uh, apprehension sort of rung true as Aberdeen then took the lead again when Shane Duffy, who was isolated in a wider position as Frimpong was, you know, extremely advanced in this uh, situation. Um, and do you think this was a bit of a, a strategy from Aberdeen? 54% of their attacks came down that left side. So do you think that they knew that Frimpong was going to be as advanced as he was and that they might have had Joy going one-on-one versus Duffy potentially? Absolutely. Um, but I guess the, the first thing to keep in mind about this is that side tends to be a, a an overused side for Aberdeen generally um, in, in most games. Uh, so it's not necessarily just the case that it was a tactic for this match. That is, you know, it's a tendency. But certainly, right, you would you not do it in this scenario? Um, you could see before the goal, before this goal, um, they were able to draw Fringpong really high. Um, Aberdeen had the ball quite deep, but I guess it was Considine on the left of you know the kind of central defensive area. Hayes was pretty deep close to him as well, but Frimpong got pulled right forward towards where Hayes was, and we saw that, of course, you know, against Rangers and the the old firm game. Um, so yeah, that, that was quite obvious. And then you, you know, if you can get in behind Frimpong that way, it's going to be Duffy that you're pulling out into the channels, and um, that's where you'd want to have him, right? Um, isolate him, pull him into areas where he's not comfortable. Yeah, I guess let's just talk through the goals specifically. There was a couple of things that stood out to me. The first thing I want to understand, so we know that Shane Duffy is struggling since moving to uh, Celtic and clearly those couple of early goals have went to his head and he's forgotten how to defend. Um, But when when I was watching this back, I really don't understand why he doesn't just put the ball out for a throw and why he's trying to clear it back into the centre of the park. It was just, it makes no sense to me. Is that, I don't don't think I understand that logic from him. You know, he must know that there's nobody behind him he must. He doesn't know where he's going to be putting the ball, but yet he's intent on clearing it into the middle of the park. I'm not entirely convinced that's where he's trying to clear it. I've watched it a bunch of times as well, like in a kind of gift form and so on, and it's really difficult to work out for me exactly what he's trying to do. I think he he's kind of scanning um, for the goalkeeper, and then he kind of stutters with his step, and I I think that he is still intending to put it out for a throw in but he just messes it up with the way his feet are. And then it looks as though because of that, he's trying to kind of hook it either kind of over him or, or back into the middle. Either way, whatever the intention is here and whatever the kind of um, mess up that means he can't do what he intended, it's absolutely terrible. Um, there is an opportunity before the ball um, even comes off its bounce initially to just smack it straight out of play, um, yeah. you know, just to run at it and put it out of play before he's even turning and facing his own goal. Um I thought this guy was supposed to be a basics first defender. Um, you know, somebody that you know that's their bread and butter. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a it's a mess. And and the thing about it as well is that it's not a surprise, as you say. It's it's no um, shock that Aberdeen decided to try and uh, make chances happen in that way, and that it was successful. So there was still quite a lot that happened in the goal, and and one of the things that I, I watched this back again just a couple of times, but when when the ball breaks to Cosgrove in the box or played into Cosgrove in the box, I felt that Ayer potentially could have got a little bit tighter to him. Um, 
I felt like Cosgrove, there's about maybe a yard and a half of separation where Cosgrove was able to turn and then get a shot, whereas I felt mm-hmm. I could have been just a little bit tighter to him. Is that me being too harsh, do you think? It's just that first touch from Cosgrove, I think, isn't it? Where it, he takes it away from the goal a wee bit. I think Ayer could have been on his toes slightly more there and it just could have gone a wee bit better from Ayer in terms of his reaction. Um, but I, I do think it's tough. Like, I, I think that because of how unexpected... Well, Maybe you, you maybe you should anticipate the mistakes from from Duffy, <laughs> but you, you can't you can't play that way in your head, right? You've, you you know if you start erring on the side of my colleague's going to mess up here, that that's just not a bad it's not a good way to to play football, right? Um, I mean obviously you want to anticipate all the possibilities, but you you kind of you know if you do that you start messing up offside lines and you know kind of all sorts of things. So I guess I'm quite open to forgiving Ayer a lot in this because I think this goal just doesn't happen if Ayer, if Duffy does the most simple part of this simply. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that first touch from Cosgrove, Ayer could be a little bit on his toes more and okay. then get tight onto it. Yep. The other thing that stood out for me in this goal was the distance that Ryan Hedges covered and at the pace that he covered. He's in his own half, uh, in his own sort of... Uh, you know, and he covers something like 40, 50 yards, breaking his neck to get into the box. And I, I was just really impressed with this. And I was really actually quite impressed with Hedges overall. I thought that he was really difficult for Celtic to deal with. And did you did you think that Hedges oh sorry, not that. Do you think that Hedges could be I, I guess a player that's a little bit under the radar in terms of what he brings to Aberdeen? Because he's not really featured too much in the sort of last season in a bit, so maybe this is something a bit of a, a bolt out of the blue, sort of. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I guess firstly though, and most importantly, what are your thoughts on this hair? It's fantastic. Huge fan okay. of it. Okay, alright. I'm not at all, but I just need to um, check that with you. Um, I think that the the yards that you covered there is incredible and of course a theme for Aberdeen, right? You know, the, the runners, um, particularly off the ball, the intensity... There's loads of examples throughout this game of Aberdeen players leaving Celtic players in the dust. Um, and I think this is a game that really showed, um, partly because of the style that Aberdeen play, but partly just in general terms, how important those moments are, how important those kind of individual battles and, and those runs are. Um, but yeah, he, he was both running on the ball and carrying it and also those runs off the ball um, into space, into the box, um, you know, decoy runs like the one I mentioned for uh, Ferguson's penalty. All these things really impressed. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And I guess just finally on this goal, my final sort of point or question towards you is: What part does Frimpong play in this? And do you think that there's still quite a bit of development to go for him? Well, I mean, like I said, he did get pulled forward um, to you know press Hayes, but I, I guess I would say you you. you do want him advanced and pressing the ball um, for Celtic and, and really what you're hoping for if you're doing that and your players are pressing and squeezing the play is that then Aberdeen get forced to send it long and somebody like Duffy should eat up those long balls and you know put them out of play or win them and get them forward so I, I think you know if you're saying to Fringpong you need to sit back in those situations, then it, it makes it a lot easier for Aberdeen to bring the ball forward. So, you, you know, it's a kind of give and take, isn't it? And I think that um, there's a hell of a lot being asked for Frimpong by Celtic. You need to keep, keep in mind his age. 
um, and how much of the creativity um, is being funneled through him. You know, how much of the, you know, the, the, the kind of just let's get it over to Fringpong and ask him to beat his man one-on-one is the goal to score him, basically. And I think if Celtic are going to continue to use him in this way, they need to be ready to compensate for that risk. Um, yeah, you can expect him to develop his positional sense, whatever that really means. I mean, I, I, if you're just meaning by that, can he get better? Well, yes, he can get better, but if being better is by changing the way he plays, then you know you maybe lose some of the plus points to how he is at the moment. You know, so it's a, a tricky balance. I think my my take on it is that if they're going to be wanting to use him in a the way they currently use him, the real problem there is the the right sided centre back behind him um, yep. and having the right midfield cover for him. You know, yeah, I... maybe accept to an extent that. Um, what you get from Frimpong means there's going to be some risks. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty fair analysis of the of of him, I guess. Um, but I guess let, let's keep the the ball rolling with this game. So it was two each. Lee Griffiths scores sort of ten minutes after Aberdeen uh, had taken the lead again, and going into this goal, it was a fantastic finish by Griffiths, and again similar to the the equaliser um, just after half time. Some nice interplay. Griffiths is able to create separation from Constantine and it was an excellent finish. So I'm going back to the putting you on the spot for the defenders. Do you think Constantine could get closer to Griffiths? Um, I, I think it's Taylor that should be closer to Griffiths. So I, I feel as though Constantine had been kind of drawn forward to Christie and um, Taylor and Hoban have gone pretty deep and they're no longer in line with the rest of the back five. And then I think Taylor's then caught between concerns about Rodgers being on the ball and watching Griffiths. And his body position is horrible. He's kind of all hunched over, ball watching. Um, but Griffiths was his man. I think Considine had Christie and Ferguson and Holbin should be dealing with Rodgers. That would be my view on that. Okay. And I guess, so the goal itself, a theme throughout the game was Aberdeen were defending their box quite deep. Do you think that's quite a dangerous way to play, uh, allowing your opponents to you know, have that many attempts and get that close to your goal when when you know they have superior quality players? Hmm. Sure, it's a gamble, right? Particularly against people that maybe can thread the ball into the box or people that can shoot from distance. Um, Aberdeen ended up conceding 14 shots in this game, which isn't terrible, but they're certainly risky numbers. And nine of them were in the penalty box. Six of those were from open play. And if you're going to give me six open play shots in the box in a game... I'm going to be reasonably happy about that if I'm the guys getting the shots. But again, I guess what you would say is that if you can limit certain things as Aberdeen, so there were there were none in the six-yard box, right? There were none from the starting centre forward. They got loads of bodies in the way all the time and they've got a good shot-stopping keeper behind it. You probably, you know, you, you would say, well, well, we'll take the risk. But yeah, it's likely that quality will tell. I mean, they did end up conceding three goals despite all the kind of you know good efforts, right? Yeah, I th- I think for me it was just, uh, it was starting to get a bit too dangerous for me the way that it was pa- panning out, and I just didn't like the idea of Aberdeen sitting that deep. And I, I guess moving on to the sort of next question around it is, do you think the lack of pace in the Aberdeen back three impacts their ability to push up, and they don't really have another option but to defend sure. their box deep? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what, exactly what I would say back to you from that question, Gavin. So, yeah, the the, the back three, yeah, they're not the quickest, um, particularly kind of two of them, I would say. Um, and, of course, that affects the way that you can play. You can't play a high line necessarily. Um, and, yeah, that means what, what's your choice then? But you maybe don't need to go quite as deep as Aberdeen did at times. And if you, did, if you do, it's impressive the amount of bodies that they get into the box, but you're, you're really... You are really inviting things onto you, and you need to then make sure that if you're going to do that, you all don't mess up. That you keep the right line. That you you know all can ensure that you're able to keep an eye on your your man. It's it's a it's a gamble to do that for ninety minutes, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I guess another gamble is not being able to change the tempo of the game. This felt very frenetic, end to end stuff. I felt like Derek McInnes had an opportunity to maybe try and slow the game down. Aberdeen only had 38% possession, and I don't really remember them controlling the ball at any point. I don't particularly remember them having any sort of just calming of the play. Um, And I just wonder if you felt that before the Celtic equaliser, there was an opportunity for Aberdeen to do that. Uh, Yeah, maybe. It's interesting you kind of said it was, at least for... Aberdeen's perspective a little bit like a basketball um, game uh, maybe they need to change their name like the Aberdeen Oilers or something like that. <laughs> that would be but, um, it could I mean look I think to a certain extent the frenetic nature suits Aberdeen um, they've got the runners right they've got the people that have at least in the maybe not the back three but you know midfield and up front that you've got people that have that intensity that energy that aggression um, I think also they might want the element of chaos um, because if we're maybe saying that conceding ground and shots to good qual- good individuals is a risk, maybe introducing an element of chaos can kind of redress the balance and it maybe removes um, the the likelihood of individual quality mattering. You know, if you're kind of just you know messing things up a lot and being very kind of uh, chaotic, um, and you know, um, again, you know, as we touched on. Um, they they maybe don't want to have that that kind of um, slowed down nature to things. I also think that as much as maybe they're not playing as direct um, this season and going long to Cosgrove, or, or at least they're you know if they are going direct, it's kind of into the channels and stuff. Maybe the passers aren't there to slow things down. I'm not convinced that you know if later on in the game McCrory moved into central midfield. I'm not convinced that him and Ferguson for all their good. Um, qualities are maybe the level of passer to kind of slow mm. things down. Not necessarily sure that the centre backs are either. So you know, you, you maybe have to think. Well, how do we suit ourselves? You know, we've got the okay. runners. We don't necessarily have the passer. You know. Yeah, I guess that makes sense again. Um, although that sort of freneticness, if that's even a word, uh, led to to Celtic taking the lead three two with Ryan Christie putting Celtic ahead for the first time shortly after the equaliser uh, from the spot. Um, the game still had an end-to-end feel, though, after the Celtic penalty. Um, do you think that Neil Lennon could have addressed that? Possibly. So it's quite interesting, given what we're talking about there in terms of possession and so on. Um, if you can I zoom into the, the detail of possession in this game... Up until the 75th minute, Celtic had possession of the ball um, ranging from, uh, I'll break it down, for the first half hour, they had between 70 to 73% possession, which is a hell of a lot. Um, then 
Um, from about the 30th minute to about the 60th minute, they had between kind of 66 and 60% possession, so still a lot. And then um, between the 60th minute and the 75th minute, it went up to the high 70s, so they had a huge amount of possession. However, from the 75th minute on, so just before they kind of scored the, the, you know, and got back into the lead, it cratered. Um, and after Celtic's second and third goal onwards, Celtic went on to have less than... Uh, half percent, half the possession. They had about forty-two percent possession, so Celtic just didn't keep the ball at that point. Um, after they went into the lead, and I felt that Lennon could have done something to try and keep possession for Celtic. They gave up multiple chances at that point. If you remember, there was a Cosgrove snapshot from the edge of the box. Yeah. Um, in in that period, Brown was too deep. McGregor couldn't cope with that guy. Hedges running at him again. The defensive structure is poor. Communication between Brown and Duffy is non-existent. Um, then for Aberdeen's penalty, um, Wright bypasses Turnbull, and then there's a pathetic challenge from Scott Brown up near the halfway line. Loads of Celtic players are drawn to the ball carrier. Nobody watches Hedges run. Um, all that kind of stuff. So I think that some game management, um, holding the ball, having a set structure, not all bunching and trying to win the ball in silly areas would have been pretty straightforward things that Lennon could have done to try and see the ball at the game out. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Again, I, I wanted to talk about one player specifically, so uh, Sorrell, uh, who just does not seem to get any sort of a chance at Celtic. Um feel like uh, Abu Kuasi 2.0, um, who we know is a defensive-minded ball winner. Would you consider putting him on rather than Turnbull in the last sort of 10 minutes just to give you that bit more defensive structure, give you that bit more solidarity? Or do you think that Turnbull was the right move? Um, yeah, I mean, what what has Sorrell got to do to get a, a, a chance in this team? I don't really understand um, what the thinking is around him. Like you said, potentially this is going to end up to be uh, Ibui Kwasi all over again. I don't know if it was the right situation in time for Turnbull to come on. I guess you could maybe say that Lennon wanted some sort of outball, somebody that could maybe keep possession higher up the the pitch and, and you know pass well. Um, but yeah, I, I would have thought Sorrow might have been a good player in those circumstances. He's not just a ball winner. Um, yes, he's more defensive-minded, but he's, he's good on the ball in my view. Um, he can carry the ball up the pitch. He's a kind of two-way midfielder. Um, but Lennon just doesn't trust him, does he? Yeah, it's pretty clear to me. Uh, I think he's had, what, it's like 17, 18 minutes worth of football this season. Um, and considering Celtic's schedule, I think that's pretty bonkers for someone you spent a couple of million pounds on. But anyway, um, the game had late drama with the Lewis Ferguson penalty to make it three each. And I just want a really quick take um, from you on this. And what do you think it says about Ferguson's composure? being able to take uh, your second penalty in the game, late in the game, and to ensure that your team gets a point. What do you think that says about the mental attributes of Lewis Ferguson? Uh, well, he's had enough experience at taking them this season, <laughs> right? He's had plenty. Um, but yeah, it's impressive. I guess the way I would look at it is, right, there's two kind of diametrically opposed approaches to taking a penalty in that situation. Either... You've just got to treat it like any of the others you've already scored and try and put the situation and setting out of your mind and just focus on the simple task at hand. And really, taking a penalty is a simple task, so you just reduce it down to the basics. 
or you kind of focus on the mad, you know, the kind of magnitude of the situation. You know, it's a chance to equalise in the last minute, chance to get it right up your opponent that you know happens to be Celtic, and we can assume that Lewis Ferguson, his <laughs> family is probably a Rangers fan. Um, you get to win a brilliant point for Aberdeen. You get your goal bonus, whatever else, and and so you use that pressure to motivate you. So I guess you know whatever works for you psychologically out of those two, um, you know, options. You can pick one, but either way, whatever you know, way Ferguson does it, it's really impressive. You know, particularly for somebody so young, so important for Aberdeen. I just wanted to shout out Grant Gendo on Twitter, who described Ferguson when we were, you know, unsure about what his role is and so on, as a vertical energy merchant, which I really <laughs> love. <laughs> love it. Very good. Uh, yeah. So I guess it was a, an amazing game to watch. There was loads that ha- that happened throughout it, and obviously we've covered so much of it throughout the pod. A couple of quick takeaway questions I guess or, or thoughts what what positives do you think Aberdeen have going into the game against Celtic next weekend the, the Scottish Cup semi-final ah the semi-final uh, positives right well what you did worked to a large extent right um, they made chances in the way that they aimed to and quite a lot of pretty good ones they kind of sussed out what Celtic's weaknesses are and exploited them didn't really concede many really really good chances um, I think the players should feel confident Celtic have got Lille midweek, which is going to be a tough game. Um, Celtic maybe would be feeling a little bit fragile psychologically next weekend. Um, the other positive, I guess, is that Aberdeen did this all without the fans there. Um, you know, So it means that going and playing uh, not at home for the next game doesn't need to feel as such a, you know, a, a task comparatively. So those are the kind of positives, right? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair again. Are there any potential tactical adjustments that you think Aberdeen will make going into this game or do you think it is just much of the same? Um, similarly to you, I was impressed by Scott Wright when he came on, so yep. maybe he would deserve a start. I was also thinking about McCrory and maybe moving in the middle, but then you're thinking, well, what about right wing back? I really liked what Hedges brought for them as a central runner, so I wouldn't want him kind of shunted out there. And I, I don't know what the other option would be at right wing back. Maybe... Uh, McLennan, but I don't know about him defensively. Um, so yeah, those are the kind of things you'd maybe be considering. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see as well whether they'll consider Cosgrove because I think he was quite effective when he came on as well. But uh, I guess it'll just be an interesting game. But let's let's move over to just Glasgow quickly, and the pressure clearly is building on Neil Lennon at least within the media. If he loses the semi final, do you see the man who has led Celtic to nine in a row in serious trouble? Not really, um, because you know it's last season's cup, um, and I think in general the league is all that really matters for Celtic this season. I'm not saying that it won't lead to pressure mounting, but I don't think that a loss in that game, I mean, it'll be a serious situation for him, and we could potentially see the possibility they'll lose on Thursday against Lille, and then potentially to Aberdeen against at the weekend. Won't be good, but I don't think that's a, a, a kind of dismissal, um, because the, the league is all important. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's, again, some pretty fair analysis. But I think this, we mentioned a few weeks ago, this is definitely a tough run-in for Celtic just now. And it'll be interesting to see how how they get out uh, of the next few weeks. Um, but finally, give me a prediction for what Aberdeen and Celtic is going to be next week. Uh, I think it'll be a good game. I think that it will be maybe a bit more of the first half that we saw with uh, you know Celtic kind of penning Aberdeen in. I think a lot will depend on whether Celtic have some players back or not. So if Edward is available, then that might change things quite a lot. 
Um, also, if Julian is back, I'm not sure if Julian's likely to be back for another few weeks, but those might change things. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to tell, right? What about you? I'm going to say Aberdeen sneak at 1-0. Okay, I'm going to say 2-1 to Celtic. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's see who ends up the, with the points after this one. So yep. that was, you know, a lot to cover and there was a lot that happened in that game. And now we're going to move on to what we said was our next topic for tonight, today's podcast, depending on when you're listening. Um, and that's us dropping down the, to the Scottish second division. And we're going to look at Queen's Park versus Albion Rovers. But before we get into the match action, and we covered quite a lot of teams last season, uh, covered the lower league pretty well. We've obviously got the specific championship pod as well I just wanted to know how are you feeling about covering uh, our first lower league game of the season really excited I love getting a chance to see players that I might not have seen much of or maybe even heard of or ones I've kind of had a wee tip off about so I was excited yeah yeah I, I was much the same I, I was really looking forward to see how how Queen's Park were going to be in this game and uh, they're a team that's certainly turned a few heads so some of their signings from uh, Gillespie, Day, Doyle, Robson, Leon, Longridge, McHugh, many of whom who have had um, interactions with Ray McKinnon, but they've all came from the Championship or League One teams. What do you think that says about their ambition? Uh, well, firstly, um, one of the names you mentioned, Bob McHugh, he's the link back to the Motherwell 6-Hibs six, 6 match um, for this one because he was on uh, Motherwell's bench as a sub uh, 10 years ago in that game um, and now obviously playing for Queen's Park. Um, in terms of their ambition, well, I mean, with the change to being professional and also selling Hamden, they clearly have aspirations that they've made it plain that they see themselves as being a pure championship club in the near future. Um, and I think it's not just in terms of the players that they've signed, it's their approach off the field, you know, with the marketing and social media and campaigns. So, you know, they've had the the recent awake it, um, you know, that kind of uh, pretty garish design that <laughs> maybe only suits somebody that's ginger that kind of shows the, the win, draw and loss record. But anyway, the point being is that things like that are obviously designed to get them a wider audience than what a club of their sort might normally have. And also, I think what it's designed to do in terms of our ambitions, is to get a different audience. So maybe in the past, Queen's Park may have been selling themselves based on their history, you know, oldest club and, you know, historic kind of ground and all that kind of stuff. I think now what they're trying to do is have more of a modern touch um, as the club kind of transitions slightly away from those things with a view to getting in a younger um, kind of ultra-local fan base. You know, I think they would see themselves as being a club that, <clears throat> you know, there might be people that live nearby that wouldn't support Celtic or Rangers, but still like football. You know why? Why aren't they Queens Park fans? So yeah, they're they're, they're ambitious, but not just in terms of our signings. You know, it's a kind of overall um, approach now. I think. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. And um, I guess let's let's get into the game itself. Then, how did Queens Park set up going into this game? And were there any players in particular you were looking forward to seeing on? Uh, well, so they, they set up really to dominate possession. Uh, so they played with four at the back, but the full backs were very, very high and the centre backs slipped very wide um, with the midfielder Gillespie dropping in between the centre backs and Kilday, who was the right-sided centre back, was tasked with bringing the ball out of defence. So that, that was quite exciting to watch. You know, it's a, obviously a big pitch um, and it was nice to see a team, even at a level of League Two, wanting to... Um, play the ball and they were very very confident and comfortable on the ball um, up front they have um, 
Bainham, McHugh and Galt. So Bainham is a sort of uh, central striker, a bit of a target, a bit of an on-the-shoulder runner. Um, McHugh is a kind of more kind of floating nuisance centre-forward. And Galt is a kind of dribbler, mainly on the left. Uh, in terms of players that I was excited to see, Galt was probably the one I was most interested in. Um, he was uh, Queen's Park oldest player on the day at the grand old age of 29. In fact, they had five players who were 29 years old, but he's just marginally oldest of them <laughs> and the reason I point that out is that there was a big contrast um, in age from Queen's Park to um, Albion Rovers obviously Queen's Park not that old with the oldest guys being 29 but Albion Rovers have an average squad age of 21.7 and their oldest player in the park was 26 and most of them were 19 or 20 so I wanted to see how a player like Galt who's very skillful um, and is playing on a big pitch would do up against younger players who maybe have the intensity and so on, but you know maybe can't keep up with his technique and his kind of uh, daily experience. No. Yeah, I th- I think you know it's interesting to see that he's one of the players that they've not decided to move on from in terms of the rest of the squad that they've built. Um, but let's let's move on to the actual game itself. And the first time before we get into any specific action, I think I said this last year, and I'm close to starting a campaign about it. But when we're watching highlights, I don't think we need to see the kickoff when the ball's just launched out the park. So can we can we stop that, or do you think that's me just being bitter or moaning for you the sake of moaning? You need to know the game's actually begun, Gavin. <laughs> you know, if you, if you don't see that, then you know how, how are you to believe that this is actually a real football match and not just some sort of you know uh, art matter, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess it was. It was some early action in this, and Queens took the lead after just five minutes with uh, Tommy Robson delivering a a really fantastic long diagonal ball using the you know the full width of Hamden and finding Bainham on the head. Talk me through this goal and and what was your thoughts? Yeah, it's a really good cross, isn't it? But um, beyond that, Bainham just dominates the the defence. You know, it's a towering header, and it's just way too easy for him. Um, this was the first goal in eight months for Queens Park. Obviously, a lot of that's down to the fact that there's been a lack of football for um, a long time due to COVID at this level. Um, but you could see it meant a lot for Queen's Park, particularly to score after just five minutes. Um, and they were trying to hit Bainham with diagonals a lot in the early uh, stages of the game. It's, it was a wee bit of a mismatch. He's not spectacularly tall, but he's got a really good physique. He's kind of, you know, um, well-built, mobile, yep. um, and he, he can you know dominate people in the air. You know, so it was a good goal. Yeah, I think that's fair. And obviously it puts uh, the young uh, Albion Rovers squad on the back foot straight away. And, and Queen's Park seemed to sort of smell blood early on. And there was quite a lot of energy. And it felt like they had a real intent around about what they were going to do in that sort of opening stages of the game. And this is sort of how the second goal came about. Do you want to talk me through what happened here? And, and do you think it was avoidable at all? Well, it's just so tough for Albion Rovers in this match, um, particularly in the early stages, to kind of relieve the pressure. They got really hemmed in and they couldn't get the ball up the pitch and hold it or even gain some territory back. And then with this specific goal, Galt kind of gets the ball um, in the left kind of area of the penalty box and it's, it's asking for trouble to allow him to be 1v1 in areas like that. Um, he does a really nice dribble, beats his man and a low cross for Bainham to slot at home. And and this was kind of indicative of quite a lot of the early stages in the first kind of you know half hour um, in the match. A lot of pressure, a lot of reasonable chances for um, Queen's Park and Albion Rovers just 
unable to get a foothold in the game at all. In fact, Bainham should really have had a third. Um, I think after about 22 minutes, there was some really good build-up yeah. play again by Queen's Park and a shot that was spilled into his path with basically an open goal, but a, you know, a bad first touch, he kind of lost the chance. You know? Yeah. Yep. Um, I guess Bainham obviously had a real impact in the early stages and I guess, do you think he's the best thing to come to Scotland from Canada since Tim Horton's coffee? <laughs> Tim Horton's is shit. <laughs> oh, what? Tim Horton's coffee is really nice? Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. okay. Uh, clearly a coffee snob, but whatever. Um, but he seemed involved in everything good and everything, you know, in terms of threat on the Albion Rovers goal. How impressed were you with Bainham? Uh, yeah, I was, I was impressed. First of all, apologies to any Canadians that have any sort of nostalgic attachment to Tim Hortons. <laughs> um, and we will accept you know, sponsorship and advertising <laughs> from them and so on. It doesn't really matter what my opinion of your product is. I, I will still... Uh, Sold it well there, mate. <laughs> I'll still show for it. Um, but anyway, in terms of Benham, right, he had a, a really good first half. Um, in addition to his chances on goal, he ran the right-hand channel really well. Uh, he played in a really good, hard, kind of low near post, post kind of cross uh, himself. I was getting some kind of Lyndon Dykes yes. vibes, given he's actually got Australian citizenship yes. and uh, he was kind of you know running the line in this way. However, in saying that, he was anonymous in the second half, or at least you know for the large part of the second half, he really faded from the game. And he didn't offer a great deal after, I would say, about kind of 55 minutes. Um, it might be, you know, he's obviously he's very new to the game in Scotland. It's a large pitch. I, I don't know what his preseason has been like and so on. So that might have been a fitness conditioning type thing. Um, but that would be something to look out for me. You know, does he have a tendency to fade in that way? Um, yeah. Yeah. He look, look, looks an interesting player. I look forward to seeing a bit more of him. Yeah, I got the exact same feeling just from his physique, the way he handled himself. I, I like some of the, the runs he made on the, the sort of right channel. Felt that he, you know, maybe it's a little bit of youthful exuberance um, from him, maybe just running a bit too hard on the big pitch, maybe not conserving mm. his energy well. But I, I just felt like there was definitely that sort of uh, Lyndon Dykes at Queen of the South type, um, you know, vibe going on. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how how he goes. Albion sort of in the game itself though really struggled to create much against Queens. I think they had a few sort of half chances towards the end when the game was almost sort of done. Was there anything mm. differently you felt they could have done to try and, you know, create some clear cut chances or was it just a case of, you know, out quality uh, against Queens? Well, they did some of it in the second half. So there there was a vast difference for me um in terms of the two halves in this game. Part of that is potentially down to game state, right? Queen's Park were 2 0 up pretty early on, you know, maybe took their foot off the gas a little bit in the second half. Um, but if you look at the comparison, in the first half, Queen's Park took seven shots um, and Albion Rovers took one, and six of Queen's Park shots were on target. Whereas in the second half, um, Albion Rovers had five shots and Queen's Park just had two. So that, that kind of gives a, a quick indication of the change. And, and in the second half, uh, Albion Rovers managed to apply more pressure. Um, they got themselves higher up the park. Um, they tried to make a threat by focusing on getting crosses into the box. And they worked really, really hard for each other and increased the intensity. Um, and I was really impressed by that because they must have been demoralised at half time. you know, 2-0 down very early on. Really were outclassed in terms of both individual quality and, um, you know, the kind of 
structure um, and also they're, they're very, very young comparatively. So I was impressed. The other factor that was quite important in terms of them managing to do that was that um, Queen's Park lost Kilday a half-time to injury and he was a real loss for them defensively but also in terms of the possession game, as I mentioned, he was a kind of key outlet for them to kind of bring the ball out from the back. So that, that was another big factor. Um, as you touched on there, Gavin, um, there were some opportunities near the end for Albion Rovers. The game got pretty ragged after 70 minutes. Um, I think Queen's Park made some substitutions at that point. They weren't holding possession. Their midfield was being run through. And the way it got ragged kind of suited Albion Rovers because, you know, younger, maybe still had that energy and seemed to run and so on. But despite that, they didn't really make any really good chances. Um, Queen's Park were still pretty comfortable throughout the game. But, you know, that, that kind of... That impressed me about Albion Rovers, that they showed that resilience and the intensity to be able to kind of change things a little bit in the second half. Yeah, I think it was obviously, to me it felt like a lot of it was down to game state. Um, I think the game was sort of done, and at that point, Queen's Park sort of just took their foot off the gas. But yeah, I guess uh, let's let's try and keep it fairly positive, if we can, for Albion Rovers. And talk to me a little bit about uh, Finn Ekrapon, Ekrapon, Ekrapon. I'm not sure how you say that. Um, so the 18 year old fullback who's on loan from Air, he's got nine caps for Scotland. Uh, I think it's under 18s or under 17s. I think actually, sorry. Um, so he's clearly quite highly rated to, to get into the Scotland under 17 squad. He made a few appearances for Air last season. Did you see anything from him that that you know made you feel positive? Uh, yeah, um, so I've seen uh, Finnick Cron play before um, for uh, Scotland under-17s and he's impressed me uh, playing for them. Um, he's, what, 18 now, I think? So he turned 18 in um, the summer um, and he's a left-back, of course. You know, what else are we turning out? Um, particularly ones that are born in 2002. That's when uh, Josh Doig and Josh Reed and, and so on are born as well. Anyway, um, and Ekrapont is on loan from Air United um, and obviously they've had um, other impressive left-backs as well recently, Daniel Harvey, for instance. And I, I think he did all right in this game. It was, as I said, a very tough game, um, especially the first half for Albion Rovers. He didn't really make any mistakes. He was fine positionally and okay on the ball. At times, if I had to be critical of him, he took the easy option out. So, for instance, if there was a kind of ball played over his head, um, and he had the option maybe to pass it back to the keeper or you know turn and, and kind of look for somebody up the field. He knocked out of play um, just to kind of be conservative and, and maybe he's been told, you know, don't take any risks. Fair enough. But I, I just might have wanted to see a bit more from him. And the thing is that he's capable of it. So after, I think, 80 minutes, there was one really lovely bit of play for him um, where there was a cross-field pass from, I think, the other fullback to him in his own half. Um, but Albion Rovers, you know, kind of in transition, moving it forward. The pass was not good. It was behind him. Um, and he kind of you know, went back to get it and then turned his man beautifully and, and drove away from him. It was really nice. And it showed me you know, he's got the technique to do that. He's got, you know, obviously the confidence in himself to do it. So might want to look for him to do that a bit more in other games and, and be more of a, you know, a positive threat and outlet in that way. Um so, yeah, he, he didn't do anything wrong, I would say, and it was a very tough match generally, um, but there there's potential there. Yeah, I think it's a player definitely to keep an eye on. And uh, <clears throat> I think it's just a, it's going to be difficult for him at Albion. It's going to be a real learning curve, but 
hopefully he can come through it and we can see him continue to develop. So the game sort of finishes 2-0 Queen's Park mm-hmm. and I guess just to wrap things up, there's a couple of sort of overarching questions for you and with the resources that are available to Queen's Park, much like Cove Rangers last year, how do you see the season going for the moment? Um, well, the, this given the kind of performance and how they set up on Saturday, I think they should be very confident in themselves. They should be looking to challenge for the title and come up to back up to League One. Um, that's what I would expect from them. If they don't manage to do that, um, they, they should be very disappointed. I, I would say that this division is quite open for the teams that could win it. I mean, obviously, you'd fancy, given their starts, Elgin City and and you know Edinburgh, uh, sorry, and Edinburgh City to have a chance of things. Um, but Queens Park should feel confident they can try and win the league. Yeah, I, I think they, to me they're they're the favourites to get this done. I think the quality in that squad should be more than enough to get them through, and it'll it'll be interesting to see how it goes for them. And I guess just finally, you don't have to go into too much detail here, but a team like Queens Park, where there's a change and. I guess the the full club where you now have resource available. How would you try and spend any sort of available finance? What would be the things that you would look to do to try and improve the club? Would that be a focus on the right sort of recruitment, your infrastructure, coaching, or is it just a case of all of the above? Well, obviously, I'm going to say all of the above. But <laughs> the thing I'd maybe maybe most interest in a team like Queens Park doing, given that what they've pointed to in the past as a frustration is maybe losing players like Andy Robertson, Lauren Shanklin, maybe more recently Regan Thompson, who's a very young guy that's gone down to Newcastle United. They would maybe say they've lost those players because of having amateur status at the time, right? So they no longer have that excuse. They're now professional. The next thing that's going to maybe result in them losing players is having the tendency as clubs at that level do to just have people on one-year contracts and potentially you know lose them in that way. It might be interesting to see whether uh, Queen's Park can use the finance that they have to see whether they can convince some of their better players that might be assets to be on slightly longer contracts and then potentially make money from those players, you know, developing them and then send them off and ideally come up to the championship, which is where they, they think they should be um, with that kind of as their ethos. Yeah, I think that's, you know, again, that's pretty fair in terms of a summary and, I do have a feeling that Queen's Park are going to do it. Uh, I think they look like they've, they're have they investing in a lot of different areas and, and look like they're being really quite well-rounded rather than just throwing money uh, to the recruitment side of it. So definitely an interesting club to look out for. Um, do you think they'll have a Scottish Premiership season by 2030? Ten years' time. Mm. One season in a league. <sighs> Yes, yes, I'll be bold and say yes, they will. Um, right, there's a reason to listen to this podcast. Ten years, ten years, yes, <laughs> that's what we should start doing. Given uh, ten year predictions, yeah, stretch goals for listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, you know, we've we've covered two really interesting games, and it's good to be to be talking about you know different levels of Scottish football, and we've got quite a lot of content coming out soon, so. You'll have the the Pure Championship podcast out soon. You'll have the return of the European podcast, the European Football Show. Uh, And we've got a few sort of guest episodes lined up as well, which we'll be announcing over due course. Um, So just thank you for listening. And Owen, have you got anything to say to the listeners before we sign off? 
Uh, just thanks for listening as ever. Yeah, take care guys and we'll be back soon. Bye bye.